Before we get started with this episode of Walking with Dante, let me just say that this podcast has gone on for three years, more than three years. In fact, you may be back toward the beginning of our Walk with Dante. I never intended this podcast to overtake my life, but it has. I'd like to ask for a little help. I have a great deal of costs associated with this podcast, including fees to join scholarly journals to get library access, including hosting fees, streaming fees. I have to buy the copyrights to the music, the sound effects, and I have to put the thing up and let it live somewhere. So I have to pay for those services too. All of that has eaten into the budget, and I have turned down sponsors in favor of asking for your help. So before we get started, let me just tell you that there is a PayPal link both in the show player itself and in the notes to this podcast. If you would like to donate to this podcast and support it, that would be terrific. I'd say a dollar, a euro, a Canadian dollar per episode. That'd be fantastic. Half a dollar, 50 cents. Um, you know, half a quid uh, for an episode. That's also pretty fantastic, too, if you have enjoyed the journey. Even if you don't, I'm still going to continue on this passion project. I'm simply asking for a little help for something that I had no intention of overwhelming my life onto the episode. Hi, this is the podcast Walking with Dante, and I'm Mark Scarborough. And in the last episode of this podcast, we finished the first canto of Inferno. Unbelievably, we got clear out to the end of it and finished it. So on this episode, I'm going to just pause. And what I would like to do is read that entire canto to you again. So you hear its flow. And so you hear the way it moves in its kind of weird, speed bumpy, dreamlike, and then suddenly clear ways. And then I want to talk to you about the whole comedy, not just that canto, but I want to explain things about the whole comedy, including what that word canto means. So to start off, let's walk with Dante in the first canto. In the middle of the journey of our life, I found myself in a dark wood, for the straightway was lost. Ah, how hard it is to say what that wood was, so savage and gnarled and hard, that such a thought brings back my fear. It is so bitter that death is hardly more so. But to discuss the good I found there, I will tell the other things I saw. I cannot rightly say how I got there. I was so full of sleep at the moment when I abandoned the true way. But when I got to the foot of a hill where the valley ended that had pierced my heart with fear, I looked high up and saw its shoulders bathed in the rays of that planet that leads all of us straight along every path. Then the fear in the lake of my heart was calmed, the fear that had lasted all the night that I had spent in distress. And as someone with belabored breath who has gotten out of the deep and to the shore, then looks back at the perilous water, so my mind, still fleeing, turned back to look once more at the pass no one has ever left alive. After I rested my tired body a little, I continued my way along the deserted slope so that my firmer foot was always the lower one. 
then look out. Near the beginning of the climb, a leopard, light and very fast, covered with a spotted coat, refused to get out of my face, but so blocked my way at every turn that again and again I had to go back. The time was early morning, and the sun was rising with those stars that shone with it when divine love first set in motion all those gorgeous things. Because of the hour of the day and the sweet season, I still held on to hope, despite the beast with the gaudy pelt. But then I was struck with fear at the sight of a lion that appeared. He looked as if he was coming right at me, his head held high with insane hunger so that the air seemed to tremble at him. What's more, a she-wolf, so emaciated that she seemed stricken with every kind of craving that had made many to live in wretchedness, threw such a heavy weight of terror over me, terror that overwhelmed me at the sight of her, that I lost all hope of getting up that hill. And like someone who eagerly counts his gains, but weeps and gets sad when the time comes for him to lose... So did that restless beast make me feel, coming against me little by little, driving me back to where the sun was silent. While I was falling down the slope toward a low spot, a figure presented itself before my eyes, someone who seemed barely perceptible in that long silence. When I saw him in that vast wilderness, I cried out to him, Miserere on me, no matter what you are, either shade or true man. Not a man, he replied, though I once was a man, but my parents were Lombards, both with Mantua as their homeland. I was born subhulio, although it was late, and I lived in Rome under good Augustus in the period of the false and lying gods. I was a poet and sang of that just son of Anchises, who came from Troy after proud Ilium was burned out. But you, why are you going back to all that sorrow? Why aren't you climbing this delightful mountain, which is the source and cause of every joy? Wait, are you Virgil, the great fount that opens out into a big expanse of language? I bowed my head in shame when I answered him. Oh, glory and light of all the other poets. Let my long studies and great love pay off. All that I've done ever since I searched inside your volume. You are my master. You are my author. I got the beautiful style from you that has won me such honor. Look at that beast that made me turn back. Save me from her famous sage, for she makes my veins and pulse quiver. You must commit to another road, he answered when he saw me start to cry. But if you want to get out of this savage place, the beast that makes you will doesn't let anyone get by that way. She will set upon you until she kills you. Her nature is so violent and insane that her greedy hunger is never satisfied. Once fed, she's hungrier than ever. Many are the animals with which she mates, and there will be even more, until the greyhound will come who will put her to a pain-filled death. He will not feed on land or wealth, but on wisdom, love, and virtue. His birthplace is between Feltro and Feltro. He will be the saving of humble Italy, for which the virgin Camilla died, as well as Euryalus, Turnus, and Nisus. He will hunt the beast in every little village until he sends her back to hell, that place where envy first set her loose. 
Therefore, I think it's wise and discerning for you to follow me, and I will be your guide and lead you from here to an eternal place where you will hear the wailing of despair and see the ancient souls in torment who eternally lament their second death. And then you'll see the souls who are content in the fire because they hope to get to come among, whenever that may be, the blessed people. If you want to ascend to these, there will be a soul worthier than I. I'll leave you with her when I depart. For the emperor who sits on high has decided that I, who was a rebel against his law, should not ever get to come into his city. In every part he reigns and also rules. There is his city and his high seat. Happy is the one who he chooses to be there. And I to him, Poet, I beg you by this god who you do not know, in order that I can get out of this evil, and even worse, lead me to the place you've described so that I may see St. Peter's Gate and the ones you say are filled with sorrow. Then he started off, and I went behind him. So the first canto of the first part of Dante's comedy. Let's just talk about this for a minute, cantos and canticles and these words. The structure of Dante's comedy is like this. It is made up of three canticles. That is, long songs or long poetic passages, canticles. Those canticles are Inferno, Purgatorio, and Paradiso. Hell, Purgatory, and Paradise. The Inferno, which is the canticle we're in, was probably begun somewhere between 1304 and 1308. Uh, there's a lot of debate about these numbers. Um, a lot of the debate is beyond my pay grade. But somewhere between 1304 and 1308, Dante started writing this piece, the first piece, Inferno. He may have stopped and revised it somewhere around 1312. When we get on up, there's a spot in Canto 9 on up in the Inferno, or I should say on down in the Inferno, where we might discover a place where Dante stops and restarts the poem. The Purgatorio, the second canticle of the comedy, it's written somewhere around 1314. It is the most, for me, inventive part of the entire comedy. Not just the location of purgatory, but even its logic. Purgatory is not even fully established church doctrine at this point, and Dante's imagination will be engaged, for me, at its absolute highest levels in the purgatorio. It ends in an unbelievable allegory of church history and world history. It's a pageant. Um, you should know that the top of the Purgatorio, it is a mountain, and the very top of it is the Garden of Eden. And this giant allegory will happen in the Garden of Eden at the top of Purgatorio. From there, Dante will launch into the cosmos, or the third canticle, Paradiso, it is a full exploration, as we will see, of the cosmos. This is a Ptolemaic universe, not a Copernican universe. In other words, as I've said before, it's geocentric, not 
heliocentric. The Earth is the center of the universe, not the sun. I realize the sun is not the center of a quantum universe, but <laughs> those are the terms of the debate that we're going to get from Dante. So the Paradiso is a, is a geocentric universe, and Dante is going to rise through the spheres on which the stars and the planets rotate around the Earth. So three canticles, Inferno, Purgatorio, and Paradiso, these three canticles are made up of 100 cantos. Canto is just the word that means song in Tuscan. It's not a hundred separate songs about separate things, although there are separations amongst the cantos. Rather, think of it as chapters. Think of it as chapters in a much longer work, a fuller work of poetry. There are 34 cantos in Inferno, 33 in Purgatorio, and 33 in Paradiso. Why 100 cantos? 100 is a perfect number. We're, we're back to medieval numerology. It signifies God's election, the choosing of the saints. It also signifies God's perfect being. So it shouldn't surprise us that there are 100 cantos that make up Dante's comedy. Those cantos are made up of 14,233 lines. There are 14,233 lines of poetry that make up this giant work called comedy. When we're in the opening bits of Inferno, where we are now, the cantos are very easily demarcated. They tend to have a separate story. This is These are the gluttons. These are the people who suffered from lust. These are the people who hoarded or wasted their wealth. But later, the cantos become a little more open, and they start to flow into each other in different ways. But that's all way down the line. Let's just say that each of the 100 cantos is made up of anywhere from 115 to 160 lines of poetry. That poetry is written in a very specific form. It is basically written in three-line segments. We're back to the Trinity again. So every three lines forms a stanza inside a canto, inside a canticle of Inferno. But just say this. It's written in three-line stanzas, and those stanzas rhyme in very specific ways. I want to give you an example of this. I'm going to read you the first nine lines of Canto One again, but this time I'm not going to try to follow a translation carefully. I'm going to instead go for the rhyme, because I want to show you what the rhyme looks like inside of Dante's comedy. Okay, here's the first nine lines in a translation that emphasizes rhyme, not word-for-word -word translation. In the journey of our life, midway in fact, I came to myself in a dark wood, for the straight way had been hacked. Ah, to try to describe that place does no good, a wilderness so wild and rough. The very notion pulls my fear out of its hood. Death itself is just about as tough. But to tell you about the good I found, I'll have to tell about all the other stuff. I was there translating loosely in order to get a rhyme going. Fact hacked. Wood good hood. Rough tough stuff. What happens in these lines is that in the first three lines, the first stanza, you'll notice the first and third line rhymed. In the journey of our life, midway in fact, I came to myself in a dark wood, 
for the straight way had been hacked. Fact, hacked. Okay, it's my hacky rhyme, but there you go. And you'll notice that middle line, I came to myself in a dark wood, didn't rhyme with anything. That's because it rhymes in the next three-line bit with the first and third line. The middle line of the first three lines rhymes with the first and third line of the next three lines. Complicated, right? Uh, to try to describe that place does no good. A wilderness so wild and rough, the very notion pulls my fear out of its hood. There. Wood, good, hood. And you'll notice that middle line, rough, a wilderness so wild and rough didn't rhyme with anything. That's because that middle line of that second three-line stanza now is going to rhyme with the first and third line of the next three-line part. Death itself is just about as tough. But to tell you about the good things I found, I'll have to tell you about all the other stuff. Rough, tough stuff. Why is this happening? It's so Trinitarian here. The Christian notion of the three persons of the Godhead. And you'll notice that there are three line stanzas and that, in fact, there are three rhymes that rhyme in an interlinked fashion. The second line of a stanza rhymes with the first and third line of the next stanza. Complicated? Unbelievable. There's a name for this form of poetry, terzarima. Dante basically makes this up. This is basically his. There are some poets, Percy Bysshe Shelley, who try terzarima. It's hard. It's really hard in English to try to make this thing work. But basically what's happening here is you're dealing with Trinitarian notions that are found even in the stanza and rhyme scheme of the poem itself. So I suppose we're already talking about the complexity of this thing, so maybe we should just make it more complex. Smarty Pants listeners, those who are paying attention, will say, hey, wait a minute, you said the Cantos run in three line stanzas, true, but you said that the Cantos run from between 100 and 15 and 160 lines each, and that there are 14,233 lines in the entire comedy, and none of those numbers is divisible by three. So how can it be that it runs in three-line stanzas? <laughs> if you figured that out before I said this, kudos on you. But here's how. Because every single canto, all 100 cantos, ends with a four-line segment. They don't end on a three-rhymed terzarima, three-rhymed sequence as it's been running. Instead, they come down on a four-line sequence. And what happens is, just to, not, just to be a little bit technical, the middle line of the last three-line stanza then rhymes with the first and third line of the last four-line stanza. So every canto ends with a four-line bit in which the first and third line rhyme with the middle line of the preceding three-line bit, and then there is an alternate rhyme on the second and fourth line. So what that means is that the second and fourth line of that four-line bit that ends each canto is not necessarily connected to anything else. Now, I've been going on and on and on about Trinitarian stuff, right? And suddenly, I'm telling you there's a four-line thing. <laughs> What's that all about? There's a lot of explanations for why there's a four-line bit. And they are a bit, again, above my pay grade about why those last 
two rhymes on the second and fourth line of that four-line, it's called a quatrain, that four-line quatrain that ends each canto, why they're different from everything else. And uh, there's a lot of explanations for all this. Some people find feminine and masculine endings to the cantos. Some people, based on vowel sounds in Italian, some people find that there is a rhyme sequence with those words earlier, and so the end of each canto is connecting back to a former rhyming bit. They're very complicated. The most common answer nowadays, and it was the answer I was first taught by a Dante scholar, and uh, and I'm going to quibble with it. The answer I was first taught was that Dante has left an imperfection in each canto. And this comes from Islamic art. And if you know anything about Iranian rugs, Iraqi rugs, if you know anything about Islamic art, you know this idea that it is geometrically based, and yet there's always kind of a, a mistake in the pattern. A mistake is too big a word, but there's an intentional disruption of the pattern because nothing humans can make can ever be as perfect as God. Fair enough. And sometimes this ending for the cantos is taught that way, that it's kind of this Islamic idea that Dante messes up the end of each canto so nothing is ever perfect. I don't really buy it. I have to tell you, I was taught this early and I don't buy it because I don't see any evidence that Dante knows Islamic art that well. I do see evidence, and we're going to get to it in the canto, that Dante knows Islamic thought. And you're going to hear me (laughs) become endlessly interested in Islamic thought as we go forward because there are surprisingly, there are Islamic traces inside divine comedy, inside comedy itself. And once we get up clear up to paradise and clear up to the final vision in which Dante stares into the very center of God, I'm going to argue that what he sees is essentially an Islamic representation of God. That's all very surprising stuff, and it's all to come in comedy. But for now, this notion that there's an imperfection in each canto that is based on a theory in Islamic art, I just don't see any connections. It sounds good. It sounds sequential. It sounds coincidental. It sounds like maybe it should fit. But again, I don't see any actual evidence that Dante knew Islamic art this well, that he would be parodying this. Instead, I think what's happening is the cantos are coming out to an ending. And early on in the comedy, the cantos seem to each one come to its own ending. I told you this, that that later the cantos start to flow into each other. But early on, you know, we have the dark wood, the beasts, Virgil's appearance, the prophecy, and then he set off and I followed him. And it kind of makes one story, a little short story or a chapter inside of a larger work. And I think that that ending, those four lines that suddenly break the three-line stanza scheme, it's it's like in music when you end by repeating a phrase. You know, you how do I do this? I, I don't want to sing for you because it would be embarrassing. But what if I what if I what if it went something like this? Do 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 do. Okay, that's terrible. 
Notice what I did. I kind of repeated myself a little, and you felt like once I repeated that opening line a second time that I was getting toward an ending, and then I got toward that ending, and I hit it. In other words, I gave it the feeling of a finale, of an ending. And again, please excuse my bad singing, but it... it it gave it this notion. You could feel it coming toward its conclusion. And I think that may be part of the four-line bit that ends each canto. It has a finale to it. It feels like it's reached a conclusion, that it's reached some place where it's settled. And ta-da, here we are. We're out. This is going to become important as we end each of the cantos. Early on in Inferno, you're going to see each of the cantos ends at a dramatic point or at some point that is really bang. I, I, I kind of argued this, that there's a, this bang at the end of the first canto, he started off and I followed him, that sums up and yet carries the weight, simply sums up and yet carries the full weight of the canto on top of it. Uh, what's going on? The strangeness of the comedy, the strangeness of Dante's imagination. But we've we really hit down on a moral of the tale or, you know, something that ends it well. And I think that that's what that four-line bit does. But there's more. It's even a little more complicated than you think. Each of those lines in the original medieval Italian, each, most of those lines in the medieval Italian are 11 syllables long. Occasionally there's a 10-syllable line, rarely there's a 12-syllable line, but each of the lines of poetry is 11 syllables, and believe it or not, they are almost always stressed on the second, sixth, and tenth syllable. So this is highly structured stuff. And just think about that for a second. Just think about what's going on right there. If there are three stresses in every line, <laughs> we're back to the Trinity. And if every stanza is three lines long, then there are approximately nine stresses in every stanza. We're back to even the perfection of the Trinity. Three times three, nine. As a basic structure, there are 11 syllables per line, three lines per stanza, which means there are 33 syllables per stanza. Generally, there's a, there are some stanzas that don't hold to this. 33, we're back to Trinity. It's all coming back <laughs> to this incredible structure. Can you imagine this? Can you imagine writing something? So imagine that you set out to write something and you thought, you know what? I'm going to write it. I'm going to make it as absolutely hard as I can make it. And not only, listen, if I, I not only am I going to do that, I'm going to try to keep it inside this very tight structure. Listen, if I tried to write poetry, I'd be lucky to come out in blank verse. <laughs> I get the iambic, but the pentameter, um, I don't know. Let's just work on the iambic, or let's just work on the pentameter. It, it, it's, it's already hard. It's already easier to write freeform verse. But this is structured beyond any Shakespearean sonnet in a way that absolutely torques the language and makes it almost impossible for a writer to work except, oh, well, oh, well, Dante wrote it, did it in comedy. In the end, the poem is going to form itself all around this structure in a medieval Tuscan dialect that Dante is going to standardize 
in many ways, and turn into almost what we consider modern Italian. Modern Italian speakers can read the comedy more easily than you can read Chaucer. And we're talking about roughly the same amount of time distance between them. The comedy sounds to modern Italian speakers about the way that Shakespeare sounds to you. Now, there's a little bit more difficulty in there, but still, the comedy is so overwhelming that this Tuscan dialect that Dante perfects and standardizes is actually going to become... I don't know what, the standard of Italian dialects. That's how big the comedy is and how structured it is. I hope just in that little overview you saw canticles, cantos, three lines, rhyming, that this thing is unbelievably complicated. I want us, you and me, to explore it in all of its human emotional depth. I want us to find what this thing does and how it does it, because ultimately I love the notion of trying to find meaning in a fenced yard. I told you early on in the first episode of the podcast that I think of the imagination as a fenced pasture, and it is. We all fence our pastures in. This pasture is fenced in by Christian theology, by medieval thought, by medieval reasoning. There's all kinds of things that are inside this pasture. And yet what is amazing about Dante is that he sees beyond the fence. There are moments when you think to yourself, wait a minute, it's more than, God help me, more than a Christian poem that just what I was on last time about Virgil and the pagan leading the Christian across the known universe, it's more than meets the eye. Dante, like all great works of literature, Dante's comedy sees beyond itself. It pushes beyond the boundaries of what's actually possible, and it sees over the fence. The fence is important. Listen, fences are always important. Good fences make good neighbors, right, Robert Frost? And in fact, trying to deal with a fence is of crucial importance to most people. Most people fence off their lives. They put a fence up and they say, this is real. Let me give you an example of this. This is a silly example, but let me say, you fenced off your life and your life is full of goats and sheep. I don't know. That's what's in your pasture. Lots of goats and sheep. You put a fence up and you've said, this is all that there is to the world. This is how the world operates. It operates in goats and sheep. Hooray. So one day a horse walks along your fence. And you look at that and you think, what? What is that? I, I thought the whole thing, I thought the whole world was goats and sheep. What's that? You have several options. You can either point to that and say, oh, that's just a sheep with a gland problem. In other words, you can try to explain what doesn't fit in your pasture by using what's in your pasture. <laughs> you can try to make your pasture fit with that, not by describing that horse out there, but by looking back at your pasture and saying, well, how does it fit here? Oh, I got to figure it out. Oh, right. It fits because it's just a goat or a sheep or I don't know with a gland problem. Or the other thing you can do is pretend it doesn't exist. That horse can walk past your pasture. And when someone says, wait a minute, I thought you thought the whole world was goats and sheep. You can say, well, I don't see anything. There's nothing out there. What are you talking about? There's nothing out there. That thing that walked... <laughs> I sound like my own uncles. Um, that thing that passed by my pasture, I don't know what you're talking about. You know people like this. You know the danger 
of what doesn't fit in your worldview walking past. You can either try to explain it with your worldview. Try, try, I dare you to try to fit quantum mechanics into, I don't know, a traditional medieval worldview. You can't do it. You really can't do it. We have to give Dante's pasture. But Dante's not, by any stretch of the imagination, an idiot or my rubish uncles. He's not <laughs> any of those. And he's going to know that there's a horse walking past his pasture occasionally. And he's going to try to solve it. He's going to solve it in ways that are way smarter than we are. Oh, let me give you my third example. Just shoot the horse. We all know those people, right? That the known universe exists. The horse walks by. It doesn't fit what's supposed to be in the known universe. So you just kill it. We all know those. They are prevalent in our world today. And they were prevalent in Dante's day. And one of the things that's amazing about Dante that that always absolutely blows my mind is he never shoots the horse. You may say, yeah, but he's going to put people in hell. Yeah, you're right. He is going to put people in hell. There are going to be lots and lots of people in hell. But Dante never, ever that I know of shoots the horse. He always tries to either explain it based on the sheep and goats in his pasture or, and this is what's so wild about Dante, he seems at times willing to move the fence to include the horse. That change, that ability to adapt the fence to include more and more is what makes Dante one of the greatest writers that ever lived and makes the comedy so worth exploring. Because we all fence in our world and we all have to figure out what doesn't fit in the fence. Subscribe to this podcast. Rate it. Oh, I could use a rating. Rate it. Um, subscribe to it so you don't miss an episode. And next time, we are going to set off with Virgil and Dante. And we're going to set off on the path into Canto 2 and discover that in Canto 2, they don't move. I know we came to the end of Canto 1 and it was Virgil set off and I followed him. And it seems like we were underway, but Canto 2 is going to come to a dead halt because we're going to have to have a whole discussion. And here's what's coming. A whole discussion about why Virgil? How did Virgil get here? Why Virgil of all people? And how did he suddenly come here? And the answer is, well, the answer is going to take us all the way up to the top of heaven and all the way back down to this place that is somewhere between the mountain and the dark wood where Dante woke up. So join me next time as we ascend the heights and come back down to this place. And finally, after we get through that discussion, we will set off and we will meet the damned. I promise you. So check back soon. See you later.